All right, everybody. So we have Juma Araki with us today. Uh, he is the founder of Araki Nutrition. And uh, so we got to talking. I've seen a lot of his work uh, more recently, and I was impressed with it, so I wanted to bring him on. And for today's charity, I'm going to be making a donation to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, uh, because you're familiar with Crohn's yourself, having gone through that in 2013, correct? Having a procedure? Correct. Uh, first off, thank you so much for bringing me on. It's a pleasure to, to be here. And uh, like you said, I'm myself is a Crohn's disease uh, sufferer, so really appreciate the donation you're making to the to the foundation. Great, yeah, yeah. And I've looked into it in the past, and it is a good cause, so I'm happy to do that. Um, so we'll bring you on because you have great knowledge in nutrition and in exercise science as well. And uh, looking at your Instagram recently, there was some controversial posts there, more controversial posts, not to anybody who's very evidence-based, but we see controversy around it. And one of them is the testosterone studies that were done. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. And can you just briefly mention what they show us? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a researcher called Bazin that did a couple of studies, like, almost 20 years ago, I think. Like, I think the first study he came out with was the classical study from 96, where they basically showed, they were basically trying to see what effect supraphysiological doses of testosterone had on uh, strength and muscle development. So they had some guys there uh, that was taking either uh, a placebo or 600 milligrams of testosterone. And just to put it in perspective, usually a male produces naturally around, usually they say between 50 and 70 milligrams of testosterone a week. So we're talking about approximately 10 times the amount, which is natural to produce for, uh, for a male. So what they did in this study was they had one group that didn't exercise and got placebo. Then they had another group that didn't exercise and got 600 milligrams of testosterone. Then you had the third group that got a placebo and exercised, and then the fourth group exercised and got 600 milligrams of testosterone. So probably not a big surprise that the group that took testosterone and exercised, they had like massive gains in fat-free mass during the 10 weeks this study was, was on. But the thing is that in this study, what, what was shockingly to many people maybe was that the group that didn't exercise and got 600 milligrams of testosterone each week actually had bigger gains in fat-free mass than the group mm -hmm. that was exercising and getting the placebo. And, like, the thing is with, with testosterone is that when you reach a certain level, you actually see some good benefits even when you don't exercise. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that you will see like continue seeing these gains, but it clearly shows the advantage uh, um, that you get from taking these drugs. Now, uh, like advantage is probably a bad word, but you know what I'm saying. Like, um, okay. like um, because it's it's a um, in the fitness industry, a lot of people will often say, well, steroids doesn't work unless you actually exercise. Well, they clearly work without doing any exercise. So just imagine what they actually can do to you if you combine that with exercise. And Bazin also had a follow-up study because there's also a myth in the fitness industry where people say, well, there's a ceiling for how much testosterone that you can benefit from, and after that, it doesn't do anything. But Bazin actually had a study where he gave, um, he gave, he gave the subject um, something called a GNRH, 
uh, antagonist, which basically um, it basically uh, deletes your endogenous testosterone production. And then he gave various doses of testosterone to subject. So um, 20, I think it was 25, 50, 125, 300, and 600 milligrams of testosterone each week. And this study was for, I think it was five months, like 20, mm-hmm. 20 week period. And you clearly see in that study that the more testosterone you take, it's very linear that you, the more gains you actually make. I think there was some one subject in that study that gained almost 11 kilograms of mm-hmm. fat-free mass during that 20-week period. And bear in mind, these subjects didn't train in the study. So this is right. just from, from the testosterone they were taking. Uh, on the other end, you would see people that were in the, the low testosterone group because when you're getting like 25 milligrams of testosterone and you're not producing anything endogenously, uh, it's clearly too low. So you see decreases in muscle mass and huge increases in in fat mass. I think there was one subject who gained like 12 kilograms of fat during wow. the 20-week period. So he clearly was in the low low testosterone group but yeah these are like powerful drugs and i like my opinion is that when you look at the effect they have they also seem to have effects on the cellular level that doesn't go away when you actually stop so you actually have benefits from just taking it once that would last a lifetime so my opinion has always been that if you ever get caught by doing drugs in organized sport you should basically be banned for life from sport because you get these advantages that doesn't really go uh, go away and I know um, many uh, many scientists share the same opinions as I have on this uh, topic but yeah it's crazy to me when people say well they don't do anything unless you actually exercise and nutrition and it's it's yeah. true to a point but you're still getting a lot of benefits from having such high doses of testosterone in your system. Yeah, and I think um, it just doesn't, a lot of people just don't want to accept that. A lot of people who take something don't want to accept that. Because I mean, I had a coach, you know, years ago, um, and this was at the point where coaching wasn't like it is today, where it's very accessible. Um, So he was clearly using a lot of substances at the time. And I was, you know, 19 at the time. So I was pretty new to everything as far as that realm goes. And um, I remember showing him that study, and or at least a related study, and telling him about it. And he was just like, no, that's not true. You won't gain more if you take anything. Um, but, again, I think they kind of just don't want to accept that that's the truth. And, no, like you said, nobody is saying you're going to become Mr. Olympia. Of course these people train harder. And it does give you the capacity to train harder because you're recovering more. Um, but it's very clearly shown that you can literally sit on your ass and gain muscle. And that's why these were created in the first place. You know, this wasn't – you know, steroids weren't created to help bodybuilders. They were created for people with muscle-wasting diseases. So AIDS patients who are getting, you know, tons of benefits from them, they're not going up and working out. They're oftentimes lying in a bed and still putting on 10, 15 pounds of muscle because these are medications, essentially, when they were first created for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I think one of the benefits that maybe people don't think about, like if you think, like, what does actually make muscles grow like you have all the signaling that goes on but when you actually start to build muscle you have protein synthesis on one side and then you have protein breakdown on the other 
And usually what I tell um, my clients and, um, and students here in, in Norway is that protein balance is like if you have a brick wall and you have one guy on one side putting on bricks and then you have another guy on the other side taking off bricks. So the guy taking off is breakdown and the guy putting bricks on is uh, protein synthesis. If they work equally, you're not going to get a bigger wall. But if protein synthesis is more than breakdown, you're going to get a bigger wall. And if breakdown is more than synthesis, you're going to get a decrease in the wall. When you take steroids, it's basically like the guy that puts bricks on the wall um, beat the shit out of the guy that uh, is taking the brick wall. So he's able to just complete his job and the walls just keep on getting bigger and bigger. So you have an increase in protein synthesis and you also have a decrease in protein breakdown. So you're getting two benefits. So it's much easier to be in a positive uh, protein balance, which again leads to greater uh, gains in, in muscle mass. So that's one of the things that people seem to forget because contrary to what people actually think, when you do take steroids, you actually need less protein. And mm -hmm. I know a lot of bodybuilders think that if I take more steroids, I actually need more protein to build more mm -hmm. mass. But you actually get more efficient, so it's easier to build more mass with actually less uh, protein because, uh, because of the increases in synthesis and the decreases in, in, uh, in breakdown. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it just kind of amplifies results in, in all regards there. So... Um, yeah. And now your background obviously is very much in nutrition. And another thing I, I saw you bring up recently that seems to be still an ongoing debate is dairy. And um, a lot of people say that the research for dairy that shows it's positive is just because it's funded by the dairy industry and, and things along that line. So um, what do you have to say for the people who are still harping about how bad dairy is? Well, I usually tell people, because this is a topic that usually is creates a lot of debate, especially especially when I lecture. I usually have one or two vegans in the audience, and yeah. <laughs> we, we get into, like, heated debates. But uh, the thing is that I never force anyone to eat anything. I clearly say to people that, like, there's no magic foods. You can, you can basically uh, get your calcium from other sources. But to get calcium, it's much easier to get it from dairy due to the high concentrations of calcium you get from dairy. Not to right. also mention that the quality of protein you get from dairy compared to other sources is like superior. So there's studies showing that you need double the amount of soy protein compared to whey protein to get the same effect on the protein synthesis. So to me, it's just stupid to, to to be honest to exclude dairy from your diet if uh, if you're not allergic or intolerant uh, to it and research is pretty clear on the benefits that you get from dairy like you see benefits on decreased risk for cardiovascular disease decreased risk for type 2 diabetes uh, decreased risk for uh, bone fractures so there's a lot of benefits that you see from dairy even like reduced risk for various cancers. The only cancer that it's unclear if dairy can have a negative effect or not is actually on prostate cancer. So if you look at the uh, literature, you'll see that on prostate cancer is a bit um, 
it's not really clear if it's beneficial or, or not. But if you look at the total, you'll see that uh, as a total, you'll see that dairy has a lot of uh, benefits, not only for those who exercise, but general for general health as, uh, mm-hmm. as well. And to me, uh, people seem to think that dairy has only been part of the human diet for a short period of time, but we actually have studies showing that dairy has been part of the human diet for several thousands of years. Like they have these old fossils where they analyze what they've actually been eating and they actually find traces of whey protein, not the, mm-hmm. not the protein powder, <laughs> but uh, like whey is, uh, is like dairy milk is 20% whey. So they find traces of whey protein. They've even find evidence of, uh, of uh, humans making cheese several thousand years ago. Uh, so it's clearly been part of our diet for um, for a very very long time, and people often say, uh, "Well, we are the only species that drink milk from another animal," which is which is bullshit, to be honest. Uh, mm-hmm. There's evidence showing that uh, feral cats steal milk from uh, from uh, seal elephants. So there's that. But I usually tell people, well. Why are we comparing ourselves to to animals? Like, I don't get it why we're – because usually we have different types of diets for different types of animals. But then again, we're like, we're completely different from animals in, in so many ways. We do completely different things compared to a lot of animals. So why did dairy uh, – why is dairy the only discussion that we have where we try to compare ourselves to – other animals it doesn't make sense like you don't see animals in nature sitting on skype on a friday night discussing <laughs> topics it's like it's plain stupid to me to to talk about these things because we clearly have several benefits from dairy there's a lot of nutrients there that's easier to cover if you use dairy for example uh, calcium so if you can stomach dairy and you don't have any issues with it i th- think it's just stupid to exclude it from your diet because it's just going to make it harder for you to get all the micronutrients that you that you need in the diet. Yeah, I always thought that was a, a strange argument where, I mean, either way you frame it, like the natural argument or the caveman argument or anything like that. I mean, personally, I don't care what our caveman ancestors did. I want to know what it's doing for us now and whether it's actually beneficial regardless of what was done in the past. Because obviously plenty of things that were done in the past were not optimal. So it's kind of irrelevant to me. Yeah, and put it this way, if 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 you provided a caveman a Big Mac, he would probably eat that as well. So it's just a yeah. it's just a stupid argument to and the thing is that people often say well, they didn't get cardiovascular disease or they didn't get type 2 diabetes, but well, again, they lived to their were like 30 years old, so it doesn't Right, right. Yeah, it's just <laughs> it's just stupid to to use that as an argument as well. So so yeah. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, another big controversial topic now is kind of the opposite of vegan is the keto, uh, the keto diet. And so um, I know you had a recent article where you said, like, our carbs is really the problem. And it seems to be it's still, like, really hampered on now that carbs are the devil. And I, I just got into it yesterday. Some girl was trying to tell me how, you know, carbs will turn off all fat burning. And that's why people can go on Atkins and eat as much as they want and still lose weight. And it just seems like there's a disconnect with people who just aren't looking at the evidence. Um, so why do you think that is, and what do you see in the research? Well, if you look at 
keto diets which actually control for like where they actually match protein and calories you don't really see any benefits from going uh, keto there's no more um, fat loss or superior advantages to fat loss with a keto diet and this is a study that came out in 2016 from Kevin Hall which was based on a metabolic ward study where they actually control for a lot of variables so it's difficult to argument against that study, to, sure. to be honest. And they clearly show that there's really no benefits. Um, uh, there is really no benefits to it. But I think when people talk about uh, carbohydrate, they maybe uh, think of it in a really simple way because usually what people think is, well, I eat carbs, I secrete insulin, insulin uh, stops fat oxidation, and that's why I'm getting fat. That's the way people think about it. But mm -hmm. usually what I tell people is, if you think about it, what are your fat stores supposed to be? They're stored energy for when, when you don't have access to food, right? So does it really make sense that you're going to use those stores when you're actually adding in food in your system? No, it doesn't. So people seem to forget that the body is very, it's a very dynamic system. So you'll have periods during the day where you store energy and then you release energy and then you store energy and then you release energy and then at the end of the day you basically calculate it were was there more storage and then release if it's mm -hmm. the same nothing's going to happen if it was more storage than release you'll gain weight and if it's more release than storage you'll lose weight so i think people seems to 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 misunderstand that and there's Data from the states, United States showing that carbs have actually decreased the intakes for several years now. From the 1980s until I think it was 2010, uh, the data from Dr. Stefan Gounet, uh, where he showed this. Uh, but the trend has been the same actually here in Norway as well. We have a decrease in carbohydrate intake, decrease in sugar intake, but obesity is still going up. Mm -hmm. So where... Uh, like what seems to be the cause? Well, we're moving less now, especially work-related work uh, activities. We're depending more on machines, so our energy expenditure is low. And um, in addition, we're actually eating more calories. So there's a mismatch between we've decreased our activity, we've increased our caloric intake, and some people ask, where are the excess calories coming from? Uh, it seems to be added fat, so butters, oils, and stuff like that, because you don't really, you don't really pay attention to these things. Like, say you're cooking rice, for example, in a deep fryer, and, and then you put in, um, uh, or sorry, in a frying pan, and then you put in oils. You're not really paying attention to that, mm -hmm. and it's not really adding in any satiating effects because it doesn't really take up a lot of room in, in, in your stomach. But doing this with oil can be like adding right. in 250, 300 calories, and people are like not thinking about these things. I'm not saying that oils are, and fats are bad. I'm just saying that people might need to be more wary about these things because like you only need a, a tablespoon of oil and it's 100 calories compared to like eating a banana which is equal amount or 100 grams of chicken breast which is the same i'm pretty sure, sure. we can all all agree that oil is probably the thing that's going to leave you least satiating from those three options so it's very energy dense um, and it's easy to 
get in a lot of ca uh, calories. So when it comes to when it comes to carbohydrates and obesity, I think I'm not saying that keto diet and 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 low carb diets can't be used because some people adhere better to a diet when it's lower in carbs. So I've had clients that basically when they eat more carbs, they don't really feel well. They feel uh, they're tired. Uh, it seems to increase their appetite. And then when we decrease their carbohydrate intake and use a higher protein diet and increase their fat, it seems to have a better effect for them. What I'm, uh, what I'm, I'm against is having like this universal diet where we recommend everyone doing keto or everyone doing a low-carb diet. That's what I'm having issues with. But if you're if you're inactive, like you're spending most of the day at a desk and not exercising, you're probably not going to need as much carbs, and you're probably not going to need as much total calories as well. And you do see that people who are um, overweight seems to tolerate carbohydrates uh, worse than people mm -hmm. that are lean due to um, – due to decreased insulin sensitivity. What's funny, uh, I just want to mention this uh, since we're on the topic. Usually people talk about um, low-carb and ketogenic diets being good diets for, for, uh, for diabetes. So what you're trying to do when you have type 2 diabetes is you're trying to um, increase the insulin sensitivity so you're not dependent on, on drugs and stuff like that, right? The thing is that I recently did a study on cyclists where we fed them a, a high-fat diet, and then we measured their glucose the day after. And bear in mind, this is a cute study. Like, it was one high-fat meal, and we basically saw tendencies to insulin resistance just with that one high-fat meal the next day because we had much higher glucose concentrations. Uh, and over time, like, if you look at um, – if you look at performance and athletes, for example, you do see that as soon as you get fat adapted by eating a, a, a low-carb, high-fat diet, you do have a reduced ability to actually use carbohydrate as fuel. Uh, sure. And that's due to downregulations of an enzyme called PDH, which is, um, which is uh, important to actually carb um, oxidize carbohydrates. So Stellingworth had a paper, I think it was published in 2006, where they fat-adapted people and then they actually carved them up. Mm -hmm. But what they actually saw that even when you're – like even if you carb up when you're fat-adapted, you can't uh, metabolize carbohydrates in the same way as if you were um, eating carbohydrates regularly. So sure. it seems to be that you have to actually – choose are you going to use primarily fat as fuel or are you going to primarily use carbohydrates and if you look at performance carbohydrates when it comes to high uh, intensity performance always beats the shit out of fats to be honest uh, yeah. there's several studies showing benefits from carbohydrate feeding when you're exercising at high intensities uh, but it needs to be adjusted for the needs for uh, the exercises you're doing and also the type of training that you're doing. So the old recommendations in sports nutrition was eat as much carbs as possible. But that's been that's changed the last couple of years, and it's been more like a customized approach to how much carbohydrate you should eat based on how much are you training and how 
glycogen depleting is the training that you actually do because there's a big difference between uh, carbohydrate uh, dependency for strength athletes compared to endurance athletes. It doesn't really deplete the muscles in the same way when you're doing strength compared to endurance. And just to show you how big of a difference there is, when we did a study um, on cyclists, we had them doing an interval section for two hours, uh, interval session for two hours, and then we did biopsies and measured their glycogen, and they were pretty much depleted after we've, we were done with the two-hour cycling session. If you do weight training, like there's a study by Tesh from 1986, if you do 20 sets on legs and you take all the sets to failure, you're basically just depleting your glycogen by 40%. Yeah. So even if you took like 20 sets to failure, you basically just depleted 40% of your glycogen stores. And when you think about it, it's logic because let's say you work out for an hour. How many of those, how many minutes of that hour are you actually doing exercise? Because you're resting in between. But when you're on, when you're doing endurance type sports, you're constantly pedaling on your bike for maybe several hours. You, you're not really getting time to rest and recycle some of the stuff that goes on in the body and then you become more carbohydrate uh, dependent because you're just depleting 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 all the time yeah and i mean i've never been big into endurance sports um but i, I definitely have seen the data that you're talking about and personally i actually so i've done keto a few times just to experiment with it just to, you know if i'm going to recommend it to anybody i want to have done it myself and i don't notice a decrease in performance at all um, but I, like you said, most of what I do is weight training or intervals, but the intervals are, you know, 10, 15 second sprints. And person, I mean, at, when it's like, you know, 15 seconds, I don't think you're really depleting that much. And so, so far I've not noticed any decrement in performance, but obviously if you're doing, you know, a longer term activity, um, one thing I will say is it seems like one of the, like a lot of the studies are shorter term and you will have some people like Don D'Agostino and others will say how they think for full keto adaption, it takes months. And I don't think most of the studies really go out that long. Um, but other than that caveat, I would agree with everything you just said. Yeah, uh, I know that. Uh, and I'm glad you brought it up because I know some of the arguments are often that, well, it's too short of a duration on the study and they weren't really fat adapted. But you actually see that fat adaptations do occur after five days. I know there's, there's, I think it was a study by Volek that looked mm -hmm. at ultra endurance athletes, the, these guys that run several hundred kilometers, and they really yeah. didn't see any difference. They really didn't see any difference in performance between a keto diet and a carbohydrate diet. But then again, when you're running for that long, you're not really have, uh, you don't really have a high intensity when you're running. So mm -hmm. most likely you're using more fats at that intensity, but it's more like when you reach up in the higher percentages of your VO2 max that you really see that that's when you really start to see that you need um, carbohydrates. Uh, yeah. But but then again, it's 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 totally like I've seen studies where you look at individual data and there's people that do great on ketogenic diets, right? But like if you look at the trend, because always when you present in studies, you pre present the, the average. You see that most people do worse with with 
uh, high fat diet and they do much better with uh, with the carbohydrate diet. But like you said, it it depends on the sport. Like I would never put a cyclist on a mm. ketogenic diet, uh, but I think you can get away with it for strength sports and stuff like that. But I am. Um, I have a presentation that I do on optimizing nutrition for muscle hypertrophy where are uh, like some of the arguments for high fat feeding when it comes to strength training is basically higher um higher testosterone levels so there's a study by Volek from 97 where they say where they show that there's a linear relationship between the amount of fat that you eat and the amount of serum testosterone that you have but then again, do you think there's a difference between going from 600 to 800? Right, it's, when it's such a small difference. Yeah, it's it's as long as you're in the normal range. I I don't think like these small fluctuations in testosterone are really going to give you any meaningful benefits uh, to to strength training. But if you go from being deficient to optimizing it, or if you go from having normal levels to super physiological levels, then you see a massive difference. But I don't think these small fluctuations that you see really are doing uh, much. And I think a lot of people eat a lot of fat because they're worried about testosterone. And the thing is that one of the things that I mentioned with with uh, with fat is that when you decrease, when you eat a high fat diet, you decrease the body's ability to also use carbohydrates when you get fat adapted, mm-hmm. and carbs have more benefits to muscle growth than fat does. Like it's very limited to what actually fat does. Like it's an energy source, and then it also helps you with optimizing. Uh, hormone levels, but the requirement that you need to optimize that are much slower than what people people might think. Uh, mm-hmm. But when you look at carbohydrates for something, someone that's uh, into physique sports, bigger glycogen stores will make you look bigger. It's easier to perform better um, in the gym. And there's actually also some some stuff happening on the the cellular level that seems to be important when you ingest carbohydrates compared mm-hmm. to. Uh, to fat. Uh, fat has actually been shown that if you eat fat in close proximity to your training session, and I'm talking about like high amounts of fat, it does seem to downregulate some of the signaling pathways that are important to muscle growth. But So I usually don't recommend people eating high fat meals before and after exercise. Uh, one, because of the digestion, but number two, because of um, it doesn't seem to be optimal for uh, the remodeling of uh, skeletal muscle. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the whole thing with you know studies reporting averages too. Because I don't think anybody's saying that if you feel great on keto, don't eat keto. You know, if you feel great on it, maybe it's for you. But you know, when we're talking about these studies, we're looking at you know when we make recommendations to the general population, this is what we're finding on average. So I think that's a good point to bring up. Yeah. And uh, as far as, I mean, within carbs, you have some people talking about gluten intolerances and gluten sensitivities. And so outside of celiac disease, where you obviously can't have gluten, um, do you think there's anything to the whole gluten sensitivity thing? Because I think most research shows no, but you have this, you know, huge group of people who do seem to believe it. And whether or not it's actually the gluten or maybe when they took out gluten, they're removing other ingredients they seem to feel better for whatever reason. So why do you think that is? 
well, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the studies that came out that tried to show that uh, there was actually people that could have uh, non-celiac gluten intolerance, uh, what they basically did was they exposed people for gluten and then did, they didn't expose them for gluten, but the subject didn't know when they were exposed for gluten or not. But what they didn't account for was that there's been a ton of research showing that if you eat foods that are uh, so-called low FODMAPs food, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, which is basically um, the diet you follow if you have irritable bowel disease, and it seems to be working really well for a lot of people. Uh, I saw a review that was published in 2015 that showed that 80% of IBS patients that follow a low FODMAP diet actually see improvements in their symptoms. Yep. And FODMAPs is basically carbohydrates that some people can't uh, digest uh, optimally, so they get issues like um, gas, uh, crampings, diarrhea, etc., etc. Well, what they didn't account for in that first study where they concluded with, well, some people can have non-celiac gluten intolerance, they didn't control for the FODMAPs. So they did a follow-up study where they actually controlled for the FODMAPs. So they removed all the high FODMAPs food. They were eating a low FODMAP food. And then they actually exposed them for gluten. And the subject didn't report any ill symptoms. So, so it does seem to be the case of maybe it's more the, the, the FODMAPs and not necessarily the gluten that's causing the problem for a lot of people because usually when it comes to uh, let's say breads you can like you usually patients that have IBS they struggle with um, um, wheat and, and, and rye but like spelt doesn't really cause any issues for them mm. and that contains gluten but it doesn't really contain doesn't really cause issues uh, for them and and actually it's been more uh, it's been um, it's been more and more coaches and athletes uh, incorporating low FODMAP diet before competitions just mm -hmm. to slow down the risk of having uh, GI, uh, GI issues. So I personally do it myself with a lot of athletes because usually when you are uh, close to competition, you start to have like you start to get nervous. And some people actually I have I have. Uh, a couple of athletes that develop lactose intolerance the, the last week before competitions, but usually they're fine with drinking milk. And it's probably have something to do with them being nervous or something like that, and it's causing some um, imbalance with their enzymes. But usually what we'll do is low FODMAP diet, we'll switch to lactose-free products the last week, we'll scale back on the fiber, and that usually helps a lot with their, um, with their digestion. But... Uh, I'm not saying that there there aren't any people that might have um, non-celiac gluten intolerance, but I think it's way lower than yeah. what you get the impression of. Because nowadays everybody is everybody's allergic to 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 gluten, and uh, right. yeah. So I, I think it's more. I've had several people say to me, "Well, I'm allergic to milk, and I don't tolerate gluten," and then after doing some trials and errors, it's basically the, the FODMAP. So we start to include lactose-free products, and we just 
eliminate the the carbohydrate that's causing the problems, and they're completely fine with both the gluten and the and the dairy in their diet. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you have special modifications for the people you train or work with who have inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, it sounds like you kind of answered that though, as far as FODMAP, lowering FODMAP foods. Yeah, I, I, I have good experience with FODMAP. I actually, I used to work at, before I went into sports nutrition, I actually used to work at a medical clinic. So two, okay. for two years, I actually worked with, um, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, but I worked a lot with patients that had uh, GI issues. Mm. And, um, and I remember looking at a research back in 2012 showing early signs of FODMAP being an effective treatment for these things. So I remember some of the doctors that I used to work with, they were like, ah, it's, uh, it's bullshit, and for IBS, yeah. it's, all, it's all in their head, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's nothing related to what they're eating, because, you know, if you go back, you would see doctors treating IBS patients with antidepressants, because they were saying, well, they clearly show symptoms of depression, and I was always like, well, <laughs> aren't you maybe thinking that they're depressed because of having IBS and chronically having problems with their GI? Because... Right. Imagine going around having uh, chronic issues with your bowel system. It can be frustrating, and you can, like, develop um, suppressed mood from, from these things. Sure. So, uh, But I know also that there's, um, there's, like, these serotonin receptors in your stomach that can get affected from antidepressants, mm-hmm. and they can potentially have a positive effect. But then again... It seems to work work much better with the low fat FODMAP uh, treatment that we have now for for IBS patients. Yeah, yeah, the pathology and how it works is is pretty interesting. Um, and obviously, there's some significant differences between IBS and IBD. Um, but like you said, there are higher rates of depression among those patients. So I could, it, it does get frustrating, I think, with the medical community when they fail to recognize the benefits of diet there. And I'm definitely not somebody who says, like, you know, we don't need medication, we just need food. But there are certainly studies showing the benefits of low FODMAP diet and other diets for people with GI distress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I completely agree that uh, often you might need a combination of, um, of uh, medication and, and, and um, like, making adjustments to, to your diet. But... Um, it's 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 interesting for me because I actually was really interested in IBS. So I did my undergrad, my bachelor's degree was actually on the effect of uh, probiotics on mm. on IBS because during that time there wasn't really any options. But nowadays it seems to be um, it seems to be recognized as a good treatment to use the, the low FODMAP diets for, for IBS yeah. patients. Do you see any benefit in supplements like digestive enzymes or BTNHCL to help there? To be honest, I've never really seen personally any benefits on myself and mm-hmm. the, the patients that I've uh, worked with. Um, probiotics is... Always a hit and miss, to be honest. Some yeah. people seem to um, some people seem to get benefits from it. Other people seem to get worse from it. And I think Kamal Patel 
did something on examine.com regarding this and it's so it's so complex because you might have a, a probiotic product which has com like the complete opposite of the bacteria that you actually need right. for your digestive system right. uh, so that's probably the cause why it's it's uh, having such um, variations and the effect that it's giving but to be honest, no. Um, I've seen some research showing uh, glutamine might have an effect for uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, but other than that, I haven't really seen, um, in my experience, it with, with the patients that I previously worked with, any benefits from uh, both the other things. Yeah, that, that's my experience too. Unfortunately, I never really saw any benefit from digestive enzymes, BTHCL, or probiotics, and I've, I've tried them several times uh, just because there's a ton of anecdote out there and some research, but uh, in my experience, it, it didn't really do anything. Yeah, it's um, cool so, because if you actually take uh, if you take the digestive enzymes and you like cook your oatmeal completely dry and you open up a capsule of digestive enzyme and just sprinkle it over it actually starts to digest in the bowl really yeah yeah, yeah. it's, I, it's never a tried that cool experience yeah you should try that it's a cool experience oh that's fine <laughs> um so a lot of this you know we're talking about having to limit certain foods for various reasons but um you know obviously nowadays flexible dieting is a generally prescribed approach what do you see as the flaws though with some people i think it's how people handle the ability to flexible diet psychologically where they take it too far. And, you know, I think when most of us say flexible dieting, we mean eat a generally healthy diet, but you can fit some other things in. Um, but do you find that some people really abuse that and, and don't seem to handle it well and kind of go off the rails because they think they have that freedom? Absolutely. Like uh, to me, uh, the idea of flexible dieting is good, but I think it's misunderstood by a lot of people. Like, it's it's almost like you have two camps. You have the clean eating camp where nothing is allowed Monday to Saturday and then on Sunday you can binge as much as you want on everything. Right. And then you have the so-called, if it fits your macros, flexible dieters that, that, feel, that think that it's a competition of how much energy-dense food you can fit in your diet and still hit your macros. Right. Uh, to me, flexible dieting is more understanding that well. If you're out of, if you're out of bananas, you can eat an apple or mm -hmm. a, an apple or two and substitute the amount there. Or if you want to go out with friends on Saturday, you might want to maybe scale back on your caloric intake uh, one to two days in advance and save up some calories, and then you can enjoy a night out with with your friends. That's more the uh, philosophy of flexible dieting for me, knowing the adjustments you can make while still enjoying and having a, a social life. So what I typically do with a lot of my clients is basically I give them a bigger, like I tell them, I give them a bigger budget on Saturday and Sunday hmm. because most people have a tendency to do really well Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday, they have cravings and they end up eating way more than they're supposed to. So what I typically do is I'll take like 200 calories extra Monday to Friday. And the amount that I save up, I either divide it on Saturday and Sunday for them. Or I'll say, well, you can have one day if you want. And then you can just eat the amount. 
it doesn't really matter when you do these things. It's just mm-hmm. for for adherence. I just see that most clients do better on having that approach where they have a bigger budget uh, Saturday to Sunday. But I try as much as possible helping um, helping people understanding how to uh, get results, but also having um, uh, how how would I say it? like um, a more late. Yeah, a more more a laid back approach to nutrition. Like it, it's it's for me. People, when when let's say you're at the office and you eat a slice of cake and it's not on your meal plan, people have a tendency to be on and off their diets. Mm-hmm. So they're on the diet. They eat the cake, which was maybe 400 calories, and they're like, "Oh shit, everything is screwed." Now I'm just going to binge for the rest of the weekend, and then I'll start over on Monday. So right. we basically took a problem that wasn't really a problem and made it into a problem. It's mm-hmm. almost like driving your car in your garage and getting a small scratch, and they're like, okay, that's it. I got a scratch on my car. I might as well just uh, just ruin the car completely because I need to take uh, take uh, take uh, care of it later on. It's or I've, I've recently read on Instagram, I don't remember who said that, but the same, it, it's, it's like having a flat tire and then saying, well, I have a flat tire and I might as well just stick a knife in the three others and, and be done <laughs> with it. get a new tire anyway, right? So. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, to me, it's, it's trying to help a lot of people getting away from that black and white mentality because I think that's the biggest problem for a lot of people. Like most people know that to lose weight, you need to be in a caloric deficit, but it's, it's more about, it's, it's a lot of people focus a lot on the exercise and they focus a lot on the nutrition, but they forget the environmental factors that you also need to take into consideration. Like, are you sleeping optimally? How are your stress levels? Um, stuff like that that people might not think a lot about, but if you're chronically undersleeping and you're chronically stressed, you're going to secrete a lot more ghrelin, which basically are going to make you more hungry. And mm-hmm. that's that's probably the number one reason why people that lose weight regain weight again. They don't have a complete uh, lifestyle that take into consideration all these things. Because most people can lose the weight, very few people can lose the weight and keep it off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be the much bigger problem in America. Well, I say America, but really all over now. So. Yeah. Um, so my last question is, I like to end on kind of an actionable step for people. So you work with bodybuilders and powerlifters and different athletes. Um, what is your advice for people who? You know, they, they kind of have an idea of what sport they want to go into, but they want to look further into how to optimize their nutrition for their specific sport because there's a lot of general recommendations, but we don't see as many sport-specific recommendations. So how would you recommend people go about finding the best info for that? Well, I think it's much easier nowadays than it was when I was – like when I was – when I started lifting when I was 16, you basically had – the forums and you had mm-hmm. Flex Magazine, which was complete bullshit when you look at it now. Yeah. Uh, but I think um, I think um, social media is probably the best source to actually find useful information. I actually have an article on my website where a lot of the recommendations I have for information to people is 
locating the most evidence-based uh, influential people in the industry and follow them because usually they share a lot of good content. It's easy to stay on top of things by doing that way. But I always tell people that try to be like try to be critical about where you get your information from. Um, there's a ton of information out there that's completely wrong. Yeah. But then again, now we actually have a lot of good resources out there that can help you uh, get more useful information. And one of the best tips I have, to be honest, uh, for people that are specifically into bodybuilding training or just want to lose some weight or and build some muscle is invest in Eric Helms' Nutrition Pyramid books. Like mm -hmm. that's probably going to be the best 60 or $70 you ever uh, invest in anything because it's basically sums up all the research that you need to know about in a very smart and um, and easy to understand way. So it's a it's in a prioritized manner where Eric goes in uh, go through every step of what's uh, important in regards to training and nutrition, and it's explained in a way that most people will be able to to understand. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great points. And yeah, I think social media nowadays is um, you find people like you, 3DMJ, a lot of these guys are putting out great information all the time. So I think that's a, a great recommendation. And uh, so where can people find you? I mean, you're on social media as well. So IraqiNutrition.com, right? And where else? Yeah, basically IraqiNutrition.com. Um, you can find my podcast on, uh, which is basically Iraqi Nutrition Podcast. You can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. And I'm not that active on social media. I'm trying to be more active now mm -hmm. on social media. So I'm. Uh, uh, you can check out our Instagram account where we frequently share infographics. It's uh, Iraqi underscore nutrition. Uh, and what we're trying to do there is basically have infographics where we summarize the research and present it in a way that everybody can understand, basically. So awesome. Instagram is probably the channel where where we share and have most of our uh, most of our content. Great, awesome man. Well, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was a uh, great uh, great to be here and uh, speaking with you. Thank you all for tuning in to the interview with Juma Iraqi today. If you want to see more interviews like that, please subscribe to the channel like the video and comment down below regarding either topics or people that you'd like to see covered. And if you like the charity that we're donating to today, please feel free to make your own donation as well.